Welcome to Healthcare IT Today. I'm John Lynn, together with my colleague and friend, Colin Hung. The world of technology and healthcare are ever-changing in new and novel ways, and that's why we love this stuff. So join us as we discuss the latest healthcare and health IT news meshed together in new ways which help generate ideas and new perspectives. Plus, we'll have a little fun along the way. On today's episode, we'll be talking about healthcare inequalities. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter at the hashtag HITSM and our personal accounts at TechGuy and at Colin underscore Hung. Plus, check out our 14 years of health IT blog content at healthcareittoday.com. Episode 40, that feels like a, that's a pretty significant milestone, I think. You know, when we started, eh, 40 seemed a long way away. <laughs> it did indeed. I mean, I was just writing an article where uh, I, I basically had to go back and figure out when we started. It was January of 2019. So it, uh, it's, a, it's been a journey. It's been fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that's the beauty of uh, even when I started blogging, you know, we're 14,000 blog posts in or something like that, articles. It's like, it doesn't feel like 14,000, but you just do a little each day, or in our case, every two weeks, and it adds up quick. <laughs> oh, it does add up quick. And I'm just glad we've, uh, one of the side uh, positives of, of course, not being able to go to conferences is, of course, we have a lot of time. <laughs> we actually can do this on a regular basis. We're not both scrambling around in different cities and hotel rooms to try and record this. That is a good point. We actually used to like have to reschedule like half of them because we were traveling or something like that. Or we even right. did it on the road one time. I mean, the, the stories about it. It was funny. Someone actually tweeted uh, that I guess on our show page, it says, Colin and John, who travel to conferences, bringing you the latest from conferences on the road. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I guess we're not conferences on the road, but we are virtual <laughs> conferences. I've already done three today. So <laughs> there you go. it's kind of similar. <laughs> it's, it's kind of similar, equally tiring. And uh, and you definitely have that same sort of feeling at the end. We're like, man, I watched a lot of stuff today. <laughs> but that's good. Yeah. But today, John, we're going to be talking about a very interesting topic, very topical, of course, around healthcare inequality. Uh, but we're going to tackle it from purely the healthcare angle. And, and one of the things that I really want to talk about first up is just the inequality in terms of access to care. Uh, you know, and, the, you know, of course, coming from Canada, you know, we have equal access. But in terms of, we, you know, we don't have to pay. There's no cost barrier. But even then, uh, even though the cost barrier is removed, access to care, especially in rural communities and on indigenous uh, in indigenous communities, is not equal to those that live in more urban areas and in the big cities. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I love our podcast because we both look at things so differently. When I saw access to care, I actually thought about it from a getting to the care. So if you're in a poor environment, you don't have transportation, you have some sort of disability, et cetera, getting to the care is often a huge problem. And so we've seen solutions. The, the most obvious one here is actually telehealth, which solves a lot of the access as far as transportation to care and getting to the care. Um, but the other ones, you know, we've seen some interesting integrations with Uber and Lyft and trying to facilitate access to care. And it, it turns out it benefits the healthcare organization, especially if they're on a value-based care sort of effort or reducing readmissions. They want 
person to come in so that they don't have extra comorbidities, which cost them more money with a, uh, an additional uh, admission or whatever it might be. So I, I think that's the interesting side. And of course, I have to take the tech angle with telemedicine and, <laughs> and other, uh, you know, travel, uh, you know, uh, applications that help them get like Lyft and Uber. Yeah, no, and, and that's and they're probably valid. Of course, telehealth is a is a big uh, technology that can help with access to care. But even then, you know, one of the big things that I'm uh, hoping to see, and we've seen a little bit of it because of the pandemic, but I hope it becomes permanent. And that is this whole removal of the barriers of practicing in various states, right? And and and, and even in Canada across provinces, because there are probably enough specialists, they're just not equally distributed. Right, so you have a concentration in Toronto, but of course somebody who, up north who lives up north might not have access to that same person in the when you had to travel all the way down to Toronto to go see the specialist. Um, whereas with telehealth and the combination of maybe well somebody out on the west coast uh, who doesn't have as many patients, maybe they could see somebody over uh, on the east coast. Why not? Right, like I think we need to look at the uh, healthcare system more as like one contiguous homogeneous source of of access as opposed to trying to build more hospitals or build more access locally and then ending, I think we will overshoot. So uh, I look at that kind of a, a access to care as another way to solve it is just in terms of just increasing the pool size. Well, and I think your point is well taken. I was talking to a health IT friend uh, just yesterday, I think, or the day before, and he, he came from South Africa, lived in Belgium, now he lives in the US, and he said, my wife almost died because we were living in Belgium and she got free healthcare, but they made her wait, I forget the time, it was like two months or something, to be able to get the care. And so they knew she needed it, but because of the prioritization levels of emergency and whatnot, she couldn't get the care. And he said he, she almost died from it. So, you know, to your point, like access is one, being able to pay for it, which, you know, Canada has addressed uh, in a different way than the U.S. and in, in some ways better uh, because people can't, you know, don't have to pay for it uh, in the same way. And so that's one aspect. But if, you know, you're still waiting two months to get the care, that's not great access for care if someone else is paying either if you needed it a month away or whatever the you know the numbers is so i think there's these nuances and could telehealth solve that is why i thought it was super interesting uh, and it could in a lot of categories and it could even get you access to better care which is a, a powerful idea as well yeah and you know there are a lot of companies you know i, I interviewed one not too long ago armada health that was trying to you know, improve some things by, you know, better matching, right? So not only is it access to a specialist, it's access to a specialist that's actually dealt with your particular condition, your particular age group, uh, your particular uh, mix of comorbidities. I mean, that would be far better for the patient to be able to be matched up, not with just a general ophthalmologist, uh, but with one who's dealt with your exact situation. And so you're right, even, you know, I think a lot of times when we say access to care, people immediately thought of, think about the financial aspect of it. But that's only one barrier to, uh, or one inequality that, you know, needs to be resolved. And it's not the only one, because in countries like Canada and the UK, where the financial barrier inequality has been removed, uh, there are still some inequalities around just the quality, uh, just where you live, the geography can limit you and you can you you can still have inadequate inadequate access to care. 
Yeah, and I think of our friend Shahid Shai. He's gone through some health issues with his family, and he's lucky. He lives like down the street from John Hopkins with some of the best care possible. But then he also has the healthcare knowledge to ensure that he's getting the best care and he's getting the right providers. He knows how to look at them and understand, you know. And we benefit from that as well, you know, because we're connected to so many doctors and healthcare organizations. We can use those connections to be able to get better care. And it's been proven that having Having a, a patient advocate like that does and, and having those connections that can connect you to someone who is the highest quality specialist in this area is a powerful thing and improves your care. So I love what uh, people, companies like Armada Health are doing, which is providing that insight, that level of connection, if you will, and understanding of the healthcare system to anyone, regardless of you know their poverty level, their you know uh, their demographic, their gender, anything, right? It doesn't really matter. They provide that solution. So let's kind of roll into it since we're talking already about digital. Um, but access to digital health is also uh, got different levels of, well, has inequality, right? Not everyone has access to all of the lovely digital tools that we talk about, that you and I write about. Right? We always, I won't say forget, but I think there's this inherent bias to say, well, there's it's the population that doesn't have access to reliable Wi-Fi, reliable internet, doesn't have a data plan, some cases that even have access to a, a uh, smartphone that's unique to the individual, right? They might have one for the family, but not one for an individual. So we tend to kind of forget about that, I think, when we do the reporting that we do. And, and of course, a lot of times the developers will forget about that as well. So I think there's definitely an inequality in terms of access to digital health. Yeah, and you know, I, I would fight against that a little. I just heard a stat from uh, from a, one of the uh, virtual events that I went to. Uh, and I, if I remember right, it was something like 86% of Medicaid patients have a smartphone. Uh, and you know, wh whether that was the exact number is close enough, right? I mean, that's just amazing to think about, you know, Medicaid patients often, you know, are on Medicaid because they don't have the financial wherewithal to you know afford healthcare and other things. So the fact that they can still afford a smartphone uh, says a lot. So you know I kick back a little against it, right? I mean I think they do have smartphones and there's ways to to get around it. I think the the trite phrase most people say for this is, oh that's great that uh, the Apple Watch is solving that healthcare issue for a bunch of people who don't have that issue, right? Like <laughs> you know like that that I think illustrates the challenge as well. Um, you know, I think about another example where they actually issued cell phones to patients as part of a diabetic tracking program. Uh, and, and I thought that was a great uh, example of something you could do to do it. And they actually saw amazing results. Interestingly enough, they weren't sure and they couldn't correlate whether the result was because they actually just called them every day. And you know that that whole bump of oh they actually care about me they gave me a cell phone and they called me each day and there's a bump in just uh, you know health you know as far as having someone that cares about you uh, or if it was actual digital tracking but I think we're gonna have to see more initiatives like that because for sure a lot of people aren't going to be able to buy the devices that are going to enable the telehealth to be more effective and to happen from home. Uh, just use something as simple as a, uh, you know, a thermometer or pulse oximeter, which, you know, the pulse ox would be really powerful in this COVID-19 world to know, you know, how you're doing, how your oxygenation is. 
but uh, you know, can they really afford that? You know, there's a lot of people who can't, and that's a that's a disparity for sure. Yeah, I think that's definitely going to be something that we will, we as I mean, the industry will have to address, both healthcare providers as well as the people who are making those devices and the tools and the apps. We'll have to think about that as they roll those things out to say, yeah, well, you know, this $5,000 device at the end that enables it, I mean, how are we going to get it into the hands of the people that need it the most? Because not everyone's going to be able to afford it. But I want to take a slightly different angle on, on one aspect of this. I think there's an inequality that's baked into digital health around uh, literacy. Just even mm. having people or, or having people trained, if you will, or familiar enough to work an app or, or to know how to submit data on a, from a smartphone or from a tablet, there is a gap there. Uh, and I, I don't want to say it's generational. Uh, I think that's sort of oversimplifying it. But there are some people who just aren't used to working with those styles of applications. And so you have this gap where, yeah, I, maybe I have a smartphone to, to download the app. But then once I run it, I'm like, I have no idea what this is asking me. Right? I don't have no idea what this thing is supposed to be doing. So, and I don't think a lot of the apps have sort of corresponding, you know, YouTube videos for me to watch to go, oh, okay, that's what that field means, right? That's what they want me to put in here. And so I think there's going to be some need for education, right? And whether that's maybe through community centers and through libraries, or maybe that's what you know hospitals do, or through some outreach program but to train people actually how to use some of these applications that they're rolling out. That's definitely gonna be something that is gonna be needed to address this inequality around literacy of using digital applications. Well, it's interesting you went with tech literacy. I was thinking more of it from a health literacy standpoint. And let me uh, share kind of one perspective on this. And I actually pull it from my religious upbringing where we uh, we looked at many poor countries where we were preaching the gospel to and we looked at it and we said hey well if I'm worried about how I'm going to eat if I'm worried about how I'm going to survive and how I'm going to get clean water to drink like how am I supposed to think about like your message of religion and I think the same thing applies in the digital health world is if I'm not sure where I'm going to sleep tonight and I'm not sure where I'm going to get my next meal you expect me to tell you about how my diabetes is doing, right? Like, or how my other health factors are doing. Like, I, I have more concerning problems, you know, if I'm in that situation. And so I, it is a challenge, right? Like, we expect them, like, oh, why aren't you being proactive in your health? And you're like, man, I'm just trying to stay alive in some cases, right? And so, and, and I think that goes to varying degrees. And I think we've seen it exacerbated in this current COVID-19 environment where, you know, people are just saying, what if I'm going to lose my job? What if I'm, you know, how am I going to feed my children? How am I going to take care of my children when they can't be at school, right? And so all of these things are overwhelming them and making it so that they can't even spend the brain power or the energy to think about like, okay, now I'm going to use a digital health app. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Healthcare IT Today with John Lin and Colin Hung. And today's episode is sponsored by Cloudbreak Health. It's really a fitting sponsor since one of their missions is to reduce healthcare disparities. And one of the ways they do this is with their language translation services, which 
quite frankly, is mandated by law to be able to offer some of these services. So they offer these in a wide variety of options, including video remote interpretation, but also have recently integrated these services with other companies like Epic, for example. They just announced that integration with their telehealth offering. And along with this, they also have a tele telequarantine and a live video telehealth service. So learn more about CloudBreak Health at cloudbreak.us. And, uh, you know, that's our friend Jamie at, at CloudBreak. Uh, he, you know, he's socially active like us and really involved in the Pink Socks movement as well. So we appreciate it, you know, companies like that that really are trying to solve some of the problems we're talking about on this episode. Yeah, that kind of brings us right to the next topic, uh, John. That's really the big one, right? Social determinants of health. That's really what all of this boils down to in terms of the biggest inequality, which is social economic, education, all of those things. Uh, that, as we all know, like your zip code has more to do with your health than anything else uh, nowadays. Uh, and and you're right. I mean, there are companies like CloudBreak and, and NowPow and, and others that are doing some pretty amazing things to try and address it. And for me, one of the more exciting developments is, first of all, willingness by government to actually look at the problem. Because I think before, a lot of governments just didn't want to even acknowledge it. Uh, it was kind of, I won't say swept under the rug, but it was just one of kind of like that ugly problem that no one wanted to visit. Uh, but now I think it's front and center uh, for a variety of reasons and, 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 and good for all of us that we're finally going to look at it. But I'm really excited by um, companies that are mapping the problem. And, and in some cases like Esri, literally mapping the problem and showing <laughs> deserts, uh, food deserts and showing uh, deserts where there's no pharmacies or no access to healthcare. And so it's very visual for city planners. And, and public health authorities to be able to go, oh yeah, like there's gonna be a problem with this neighborhood because there's just simply no access uh, to any of the infrastructure that's needed for good health. Uh, but also people who are now tracking this stuff, looking at racial information, looking at social economic information when collecting health data. Uh, I know in the past there was some reluctance to track it because it was like, oh, we don't wanna you know, offend anybody, but now I think it, people are realizing, no, we need that information so we can build programming and address it. Uh, it's not for an evil reason, it's actually maybe a good reason why we need to collect this stuff. So those are the things that I'm looking at for the SDOH uh, going forward. Yeah, and I think the, the biggest challenge with SDOH is that not one organization can solve it. Mm. Uh, that you just have to have everyone involved uh, in the healthcare process, including payers, including providers, including the patient, including the outside partners. Uh, you know, there's very few healthcare organizations that are gonna create their own food bank, for example. <laughs> you know, like that's just not in their mission and, and they shouldn't because there's other ones out there that are, are really good. You know, I was, I was just listening to a SDOH expert on the Lenovo Health Virtual Summit and she made a really interesting point. And it, it, it's a little bit counter to our previous discussion about, you know, hey, when you're dealing with this, sometimes you can't use a smartphone, but she said the food bank is never going to report to you that the patient had a, had a healthy meal. Like, it's just not, it doesn't work for them, right? But the patient could. So, you know, it is a challenge and you've got to work through the problem of can the patient inform you and how do you engage the patient who's worried about a lot of other things, you know, just to address the previous comments. But the patient, if they are engaged in their care and you are and you have created that connection and that communication channel with them, they could report to you that, hey, I had a healthy meal at this food bank and, you know, and so my health is going to be better because I've had this meal. And then she made a really interesting point. She said, 
And as a healthcare organization, you could take that reporting for the food bank and you could give it to the food bank because the food bank needs a way to justify to their donors that they're actually making an impact. And so like creating that full circle is pretty powerful to think about that the hospital could help the food banks get funding by collecting the reported information from their patients. Yeah, I mean, this is for me, this is one of the more exciting areas of healthcare to to look at and cover just because it touches so many aspects of everyday life, right? I mean, you could do something around healthy food, you could do something around, you know, uh, you could do some things around even sexual health, right? Like all these things are things that have a real life impact on the individuals. And, you know, I think in the past, people would call it community health, but just addressing some of these inequalities, I think will be, uh, first of all, I think it will extend what we think of in terms of healthcare, but I think it'll extend the reach of healthcare into the lives of, of everyone every day, which is needed for prevention, right? Yeah, and I think the first step of any social determinants of health is the data and understanding, you know, like you said, the, you know, what zip code are you in or what situation are you in and understanding that. I think it's going to be interesting to watch in this post, you know, mid-COVID-19 world or wherever we're at, uh, you know, how did that influence all of this data? And is that going to cause some spikes in data in zip codes that are surprising or, you know, uh, other things like that? Uh, I, I think, you know, and it also the COVID-19 has highlighted why this problem is so important, because we know that many of the deaths have happened, you know, based on this social determinant of health data. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately. And so, you know, could we use this data more effectively to you know, st you know, stop some of those problems that were happening disproportionately to people that were in a certain area or that were you know subject to they didn't have access to the care that would allow them to not you know pass away from COVID-19 versus you know get the treatment they need things like that uh, you know hopefully we're at the point where we can do that. Let's move on to our last quick little uh, tidbit, John, before we have to close off another episode. But one thing that maybe a health IT company can do to address these inequalities that we've been talking about today. You go first. Yeah, yeah so I would say, you know, it starts with my favorite thing, which is actually just caring about it and doing, you know, taking some time and effort and saying, what can we do to help address some of these healthcare disparities? I was talking with a doctor last night and he said, I really believe the way for me to be profitable is to do the right thing for the patient. If I do the right thing for the patient, I'm going to be profitable. And I think that's true for health IT companies as well. If you do the right thing for the patients and you know, across all spectrums, regardless of equality, you know, that if you do the right thing for the patients, then you're going to be profitable as well. Uh, for me, one of the things I would say is for, I'm speaking directly to the designers of, of, and product managers, you know, when you're building your uh, health IT products, give a thought to those edge cases. What if someone doesn't have a permanent address? Like, are you forcing someone to enter an address and what happens if they don't have one? Is there an option for you to select that says no fixed address or something like that, right? Uh, what happens if if you have an app, what happens if the person that the uh, physician is meeting with doesn't have a, a smartphone? Do you have a partnership with a, an organization that can supply one? Do you rent one? And Or is there a way they could just do it online as well, right? So that you mimic the app online because most people could maybe go to a community center and use you know, a, a desktop could you mimic your app on that? And 
those are things that typically people don't think about, but they're so easy to be solved, right? There are ways to solve it. And I think going forward, hospitals will probably be demanding that their vendors think about and design these things into their solutions. So that would be my tidbit of advice is just like you said, care and start to think about this because I think you'll find there aren't that, they're not that hard to solve some of these access and inequality uh, problems. Right, it doesn't cost a lot. It just takes taking some time to to put some thought into it and design it appropriately. Exactly. Hey, that's all the time we have this week for this episode. So thank you all of those who tuned in to Healthcare IT Today. You can find more details about our show by checking out the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. And please share your voice and engage with the community at healthcareittoday.com and on Twitter using the hashtag H-I-T-S-M. I'm Colin Hung with my friend and health IT collaborator, John Lane. Thanks for listening and have a great week.